This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining me. In Arizona, we have a new program called Education Savings Accounts. This is the hottest, some people may say it's the best school choice option available. It allows any family who receives a stipend from the state to use that to send their child to a private school or to use it for some other educational services if their child is not attending a public school. The idea is nonetheless very controversial. And so when the governor of Arizona expanded this program to include all those parents who did not want to send their children to public school uh, because of masking requirements or vaccination requirements, that they would be able to use these education savings accounts and they would be funded by the COVID relief program of the uh, federal government. Well, the Biden administration has said, no, you can't do that. We're going to take that money back if you use it for this purpose. So this is the latest and hottest issues in the school choice debate. So I'm very fortunate today to have uh, with me on the Education Exchange, uh, Matt Bienberg, the uh, Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, who has been following this issue for uh, some time. So uh, thank you, Matt, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me on. Well, so Matt, um, yeah, first of all, tell me, what is the Education Savings Account Program prior to COVID? When was it set up in Arizona? How does it basically operate? Sure. So uh, Education Savings Accounts, or ESAs, or as they're called officially in Arizona, Empowerment Scholarship Accounts, uh, it's a program that actually started 10 years ago. Arizona was the first state in the country to have one. It essentially says if you're a family who uh, has a student, if they decide that the public education route is, is not working for them, they are able to, instead of having, you know, say if it's $10,000 going to be spent on them in the public school, they can take a portion of that money and put that into an account for the family. And that comes out to, to typically about $6,500 in Arizona uh, for each student. And so essentially, Arizona pioneered that program about 10 years ago. We've seen, uh, especially this, this last year or so during COVID, uh, a number of other states expand. So we, we doubled the number of states that had these programs. It's now gone to 10 just within the last year or so. Uh, so this is something, as you mentioned, is sort of taking, taking shape across the country, especially as you know, teachers unions have been blocking school reopenings, pushing for very draconian mitigation policies. Um, you know, pushing questionable content in the curriculum. You're seeing parents who are looking for school choice and education savings accounts or ESAs have, have been something to, to help whether families want to look for a private school that may be operating or if they decide, look, I'm, I'm just going to try homeschooling my kids. You know, a lot of families essentially became, you know, quasi homeschool parents uh, anyway, as, as their kids were, were kept from being able to do in-class instruction. And so this is a program that essentially says we're going to offer some financial assistance to the families who are now taking on that burden of, of ensuring that their students are getting an education that they need. So how much, um, how many, how many families, how many children are actually participating in this program at last count? So in Arizona right now, the program is still only open to certain groups of kids. So kids with special needs, kids from failing schools, et cetera. Um, the program had 140 kids its first year. That has grown to over 10,000 now. So we've seen, again, even just in the last couple of years, nearly a doubling of that uh, sort of pre and post COVID pandemic. And so it's a program that, you know, we're still working to extend access to additional families. Um, and this is, you know, to your point about uh, Governor Ducey, essentially what, what we've had happen here, and we can go into a little more detail on this, 
is the governor said, okay, we have this existing ESA program, but currently that's limited to just these, these certain groups of kids. It's about a, a quarter of the students in Arizona who right now are eligible for it. And he said, well, given everything that's going on with COVID, given all the disruptions to families and to students learning, we're gonna create a, a similar program that's sort of modeled on that ESA approach that says, for these students who are attending schools uh, that are putting in these mandates, if families don't feel that that's you know, the, the right approach uh, for what their kids need, we're gonna offer similar types of scholarships as these ESAs. So it was, we're gonna give $7,000 to families uh, who, would who would like to be able to pursue this. And so that's that essentially what- only be, That can only be paid out of uh, the federal COVID relief funds, right? And, and that's time limited. So aren't you gonna be putting uh, students in schools under a program and all of a sudden the money's gonna disappear on them? Yeah, that's a great question. So there have been conversations about, you know, are there ways to make sure that those families don't get, you know, sort of cut off uh, with the expiration of those programs. So absolutely to ensure that, you know, those students who, you know, if, if they moved out of a, a public school environment that wasn't serving them, and now they, they found and there's, you know, a great fit, whether that be homeschooling or, or private schooling options to make sure that those financial resources aren't, you know, you don't sort of pull the rug out from underneath them, you know, a year or so later. Yeah, well, wouldn't you have to get uh, legislative authorization to, to do that, then you would you'd have to have a, a program uh, enacted by the legislature. Can the governor achieve that? Uh, that's right. The governor actually came out during his state of the state address and, and again said, you know, he's he's been very um, uh, adamant about supporting school choice. And in his state of the state address said that he would be signing, you know, essentially school choice bills that came across his desk. So that's something that at this point is, is incumbent upon the legislature to take up um, and, and again, uh, meet the need for those students and ensure that they continue to actually have those opportunities. Well, there must be opposition to this. Where's the opposition coming from? <laughs> uh, the opposition comes from the, the sort of usual suspects, I would say. Um, you know, you have obviously the teachers unions, which have aggressively argued for school shutdowns uh, since early on in the pandemic. You know, we saw news coming out about how they were influencing the CDC recommendations that, you know, the studies have come out showing that, you know, school shutdowns and lockdowns weren't tied to outbreaks or, or you know, sort of community factors. It was essentially to what extent does the union have political influence is, is where you were able to sort of predict these shutdowns and the extent of that. So these same teachers unions and education establishment groups that have opposed, you know, essentially in-person instruction for students also are very adamant that those families not be given an alternative. So they essentially say, we we're going to demand that the schools be closed or continue to go down this, this certain route for, for COVID policies. And if families don't like that, we actually oppose them even being able to take their dollars with them. Uh, so they basically say, if you're gonna leave us, well, now you're on the hook for it and you have to pay for it yourself, even though you're also paying you know, taxes through local property taxes and sales tax and all that. Well, it's not surprising that the unions are opposed to this. They've been opposed to the school vouchers uh, in al almost everywhere in every state. And this is uh, very similar uh, to a school voucher program. Do you have a school voucher program in Arizona separate and apart from the education savings account program? So we have a tax credit scholarship program, which is, is also distinct from a voucher. Um, so there are states, you know, Wisconsin and others that, that create a voucher, which is literally, you know, essentially a check that goes uh, that a family can get to take to a private school. With the ESA program, that is money deposited to the family. They can then, if they want to take that to a private school, they can. Uh, there's also the tax credit scholarship program where for families who would like to donate, essentially they can say, instead of paying all of my money to the state general fund for tax revenues, I'm going to identify that I would like a portion of this 
to go help support scholarships, which can then be used uh, uh, to, to help pay for private education. So similar in terms of also ensuring that there's financial support for those families, uh, but a little bit different mechanism than kind of that traditional voucher um, that you so mentioned. So the tax credit program, how sizable is that in Arizona? Uh, so that that's one that is a little bit more developed. So that has um, that has more students on it than ESA program. Um, that that right now, and one of the the disadvantages of that is it sort of limits the the students to saying you have to, you know, you're sort of dependent on those contributions, right? And so whereas with the ESA program, it says, look, public school students are automatically funded. We have a state formula which says if you're going to public school, you're going to get that funding. The ESA program. Kind of piggybacks on that and says some of this guaranteed funding goes to you if you choose the ESA route. With the tax credit scholarship program, it is dependent on there being donations. And there are, you know, you, you still have a, a very vibrant program with that um, of, of donations. And so that's something that has been serving kids. Part of the difficulty with that, though, is in a lot of these cases, you know, if the student goes and gets a, a tax credit scholarship award from one of these grant making programs, they're trying those those programs are trying to to split up a you know a fixed pool of donation funds that they have across their students, and so they're they're trying to decide you know well, we can give all this money to this student, but then that means there's not resources for another, or do we give every student you know just a couple thousand dollars, and so now they're on the hook for a larger piece of it. So, so that's one of the, this is a decision that's made by each foundation. So there's various uh, foundations that are set up, and people can donate to the foundation of their choice, and then they decide whether or not to give a large uh, uh, scholarship to each uh, child or a small scholarship? Essentially, yeah, there's these nonprofit groups which help facilitate the um, the scholarships. And so, yeah, they're, they're then tasked with trying to, to decide and, and, and make sure that those awards go out in a way that meets the needs. So how many students are participating in, in the tax credit program? So there are tens of thousands of students that are in that program. So that is, is one that um, Arizona right now has about 40,000 students in private education. Um, and so a, a fair chunk of those kids get scholarship awards, but again, those tend to be partial. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison um, insofar as those scholarships aren't necessarily meeting kind of the full cost. And, and one point I guess I will say that comes up a lot in these discussions, there's a lot of opposition to school choice where people will say, well, see, look, this is an example because you're not giving enough money to actually cover the cost of private education, right? You're only giving sort of a subsidy to these families who otherwise are gonna pay for it. And we actually put out a report this past year on the decade of the ESA program in Arizona that showed, again, I mentioned those awards right now from the ESA program, about $6,500. That's actually almost exactly the same as the median of private school tuition for elementary and middle schools in Arizona. So if the ESA program, regardless of your family's income, you don't need to, you know, we hear a oh, private school is a $20,000, $30,000 thing, you know, in some of these kind of elite boarding schools in, you know, Massachusetts that you might find your typical private school, you know, especially when you've got a lot of these, you know, Catholic schools that are serving very disadvantaged uh, populations a lot of the time, their tuition comes in at a rate that something like the ESA program fully covers. So the governor's program, for instance, that $7,000 award would actually cover the tuition at so the majority so the of these ESA schools. program provides more support, generally speaking, than the tax credit program. It's serving fewer students. Uh, it's, it's very controversial. It's very small. 
still, why is it so small? Why isn't it growing at a more rapid rate? Uh, is there a, a legislative limit on how much can be spent or, or what's, what's keeping it from growing? Yeah, also a good question. So as I said, it actually, you know, if you look at the chart of the growth, uh, you know, it's, it's increased, you know, essentially doubled over the last three years. As I mentioned, right now, it is limited to certain populations. So, you know, we go and we talk to families uh, and, and groups, and usually it's, I've never heard of the ESA program. Families just lack an awareness of it. So there's there's a difficulty because only, you know, again, about a quarter or a fifth of the population is eligible for it. Yeah, but how much is that? There, there must be millions of students in Arizona. So there's about 1 million students in Arizona. Um, and so right now about 200, a little over 200,000 students are eligible for it. And so you have a significant portion of the population who's not eligible. And then even within that, you're trying to get the word out. And so for instance, um, students from DNF rated public schools are eligible for it uh, if they reside within the attendance boundaries of a DRF rated school. And we've been trying to, to help with this, for instance, it's nearly impossible for a family to know without having a lot of background information about where these attendance boundaries fall, do they, do they actually qualify or not? So a lot of these communities where students could benefit, they don't even necessarily know about it. And for even the ones that do, you know, it's trying to, to get so that message. Lim limited information is a big constraint on, on the size of the program now. Now, of course, then if this is sort of a small program uh, and the governor wants to expand it through the COVID relief program, why is the Biden administration cutting this off? Is there, it, it, it's, it seems to me like they're making a mountain out of the molehill. Uh, yeah, um, so we, we essentially have, and I think what you're referring to is the, the Biden administration has essentially come down and, and threatened to essentially claw back or, or, or withhold you know, additional funding if, if Arizona doesn't scrap this, this, this program, uh, essentially saying this is not a okay use of the funds. Um, and basically, you know, I think as, as everybody is aware, public education has received, I think it's fair to say, a truckload of COVID relief funding. You know, it's about uh, $200 billion uh, uh, nationwide. And how much went, in Arizona? How much uh, COVID money for schools is coming to Arizona? Uh, I think it's just shy of four, just shy of about $4 billion. $4 billion. Um, so $4 billion. And how much is this program going to be costing? <laughs> Are we talking uh, about uh, you're, a million? You're, you're talking $10 million is $10 million. The, the piece of, of particular that's this specific so $10 million to, out of $4 billion is what we're uh, fighting over here. Uh, it just sounds like a very symbolic issue. This is a Justice Department that's bringing this issue uh, to the uh, governor's attention. Uh, you have folks from the, the Treasury that are essentially saying that this oh, is not um, that this is not OK. And, and to your point, I, I think this is sort of telling you know, uh, the folks at American Enterprise Institute and elsewhere have, have kind of documented the use of COVID funds. And, you know, they've shown their, their estimates were, you know, potentially it's 40% of those $200 billion nationally that are going to go to actual reopening and recovery. And, you know, so it, it's sort of ironic that you see this massive amount of the COVID funding that was dropped in schools that everybody essentially knows is not going to anything COVID related. You know, you've seen stories of schools renovating, you know, essentially buildings or racetracks and, and sorts of stuff. And yet, then you have the administration zeroing in on this and saying, "We don't think this is." Uh, you well, know, how is the, how is the law worded? So this law was passed. Uh, it, doesn't it give the states a, a good deal of discretion as to how to use the monies? Uh, it it does. Um, it essentially says that the funds are intended to mitigate the fiscal effects stemming from COVID nineteen. Um, 
and it says including supporting efforts to stop the spread of the virus. But that's a, a pretty vague, uh, you know, directive in terms of addressing the fiscal impacts of the program. And it, you know, it, it seems reasonable to say, look, again, these families who are finding the educational environments of their kids disruptive or, you know, not not appropriate for those students who are looking for options, you know, again, a lot of these have, these parents have already struggled, whether that's been taking time off from work or homeschooling, whatever it is, uh, it, it certainly seems that providing assistance to them is, is something reasonable. So we actually well, has just- Has the Treasury Department actually cut off the funds or is it just sort of saying that we might do this? So they've given, I think it's now a 60 days um, that is where they, they are, that essentially a 60 day warning. Um, and uh, actually just this week now, it, it's, um, the Arizona Attorney General, um, Mark Brnovich, just released a letter uh, sort of again pushing back on this and, and noting that the, you know, the federal government is, is trying to sort of micromanage here the use of these funds because they, they don't essentially don't approve of, of how they're being used. And you know, as, as the Attorney General here in Arizona pointed out, you know, uh, the, the understanding of, of, of government here is the state government, you know, education is largely a, a state function, and, and historically, this has not been something that is dictated with, uh, you know, kind of micromanagement from from DC. And obviously, as with most things, we've seen sort of a, an well, increase. But, but but still, federal aid to states often comes with strings, like the special ed program. You yep. got to use that special ed money in a very particular way. There's all kinds of regs attached to that compensatory education program. You have all kinds of regs attached. So attaching regulations to uh, to federal aid to states is not unheard of. In fact, it's pervasive, I would say. So how is this any different yeah. from just the, the, any other regulation out there? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it is certainly not unprecedented that, that they're doing it. You know, I, I think that there, there is an important conversation that we should be seeing more of, which is how much have they overstepped that? You know, uh, again, there's, there's clearly a, a notion of, well, if the federal government just ties strings to everything and, and basically makes the states dependent on that funding, you've inverted the way that system is supposed to be set up. You know, historically, that was a very small piece of education funding for some of those, those particular programs trying to ensure, you know, essentially equal protection, you know, the, the very narrowly uh, understood role that would be constitutional. Uh, there's, there's no even uh, really, I would say, attempt in, in a lot of the conversations today um, but even kind of without getting, you know, in that that conversation, which I think right. is a longer usually one. Usually federal regulations uh, go through a detailed process before they get promulgated. This seems to be done something that's been done off, very much off the cuff and just aimed at a particular state rather than a broad general federal policy with respect to how these monies are to be spent. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's fair. And again, to your point, even setting aside the larger point about to what extent should the federal government be involved, the way that this language is written, you know, really does seem to provide, as with, with most of the COVID funding, it's very broad in terms of what it allows. And so for them to say, this is a program intended to help mitigate fiscal impacts of COVID and for the governor to, to use this, um, you know, I think it's also telling, we've seen all of the, you know, stimulus checks and, and completely open-ended funding that's come to individuals, to states for COVID. And yet when it goes to, and, and you know, that money could be used for, for anything, including education. Uh, but then when you have a program that, that explicitly calls out you know, this option of, hey, maybe we could provide funding directly for families, uh, you see you know, folks in Washington and the unions rising up and, and trying to very aggressively shoot that down. So now, if it should be shut down, would the state legislature substitute state monies for this program? 
Um, so the legislature just kicked off this week in Arizona. Um, so obviously that you know will ultimately be up to the members there. Um, but I think absolutely you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of enthusiasm for trying to ensure that these students don't get kicked off um, for the kids who who didn't even get in this program. Um, you know, to, to be able to have that access. So I think there is a large appetite, uh, you know, and we're seeing this in other states as well, but absolutely to your question, I think the state legislature would look at this and say, you know, you're, you're trying to kind of push, push us around uh, with what we're able to do. You have created this program that provides funding. We believe this is the best use for our state of those funds. Um, and if you're gonna, you know, shoot this down, you know, to try and make sure there's a safety net for the kids who are on those programs and, and for others in the state who are looking for relief. Well, Arizona is not your hardcore red state. You know, it's probably more like a purple state. I think it went for Mr. Biden in the last election, President Biden won Arizona. Uh, so why, is, why isn't this the wrong place for a fight? I mean, this sounds to me, you, you would expect uh, less intense conflict in in the relationships between Arizona and the Biden administration and then other states, so Mississippi or Alabama or something like that. So what's is there is the legislature Republican on both the Senate and the House sides? The legislature. So both. Um, yeah, the both the executive and legislative branch are um, there's a Republican majority uh, in both the Senate and the House. Uh, it's a very slim majority. So you do have, you know, as you said, in terms of the, the legislative makeup, it's very close. So there is um, uh, essentially conservative governance of the state legislature. That obviously, again, as a very narrow um, majority does mean that, you know, it only takes one vote to, you know, in, in either chamber, uh, you know, to keep something from passing. So uh, that that's kind of the the lay of the land right now in the state. It's sort of like the U.S. Senate. It sounds like. <laughs> uh, so now, does this mean? Uh, how about the rural legislators? Even Republican rural legislators are not necessarily enthusiastic about uh, alternatives to the local public school, which is a big, you know, a, an institution in, in in many rural areas. So how how what's the take that they have? for yeah. policy. Yeah, also a good question. So we overwhelmingly have seen rural uh, legislators, especially on the conservative side, who are supportive of school choice. Um, there have been uh, some, and again, with, with as narrow margins there, again, it only takes one, um, you know, who have essentially said, well, the superintendent of uh, public schools in my area has, is very influential and they don't like this because it's going to mean competition for our schools. Uh, and so you have seen, um, there, there were a couple of members who voted against school choice in Arizona this, this prior year session. Um, and that obviously you know, ran counter to the ability of those families to have access to it. But that is something that you do see. The, the, again, the majority of, of members, especially from the conservative side in both sort of the urban Maricopa Phoenix area, um, as well as more rural parts of the state have been you know, adamant that, and, and you know, we've seen this even in a lot of those rural communities, the families there that you know are the constituents of those lawmakers have said, "Look, yeah, there may be charter schools uh, in in Phoenix and in some of the rural areas, but there, maybe there isn't one near me. And so, if the local school district isn't you know uh, open for instruction, or they're insisting on you know aggressive mask mandates or, or whatever that the, the the families don't feel is appropriate, that they don't really have recourse. And so, I think that message has been heard by a lot of legislators. And so, I, you know, it, it will be." Um, you know, this session and going forward, 
uh, to see that that whether or not that call is answered. So the charter schools have been a very uh, significant part of the scene in Arizona. Uh, wh what percentage of students are participating in the charter school sector uh, today? Yeah, Arizona actually has uh, the largest percentage enrollment in charter schools of any state. It just cracks 20%. Uh, so we actually have a very robust charter school sector um, that has been, you know, again, one of the early adopters back in the 90s of getting that going. Uh, and interestingly, we've actually been seeing every year growth in the charter school uh, numbers, you know, going up by 10, 20,000 students a year, even as the school district enrollments have tended to flatline. And so I think that's, again, kind of another indicator of families are largely voting with their feet. They're showing that they're dissatisfied with a sort of monopoly view of education. And so they are you know, engaging. A lot of these charter schools, maybe it's there are ones that are focused on math and science. There are charter schools focused on classical civic education. Um, you know, so there's things that are drawing families to say, look, this is either going to be a, a safe, uh, effective, you know, uh, academically rigorous type of, of content, whatever the, the individual reason that a family wants to go to that is, we've seen massive increases in uh, the demand for charter schools at the same time, as I mentioned, that still small, but very rapidly growing ESA program as well. well one of the things that's, uh, I think, facilitated this is the fact that Arizona is a growing state. It, it has more children every year. Uh, it is, um, you know, it doesn't have the same issues that, say, New York has or uh, Massachusetts has. There's a declining population and everybody's struggling for everybody. Uh, so uh, is that beginning to change as is, is, is the public's, the district schools are, are not continuing to grow? Are they becoming more concerned about their competition? So the the district schools I mentioned, their enrollments have not been been keeping up. And so you do have, you know, Arizona has been a, a growing state. Um, and yet uh, we're seeing a lot of that growth as families are choosing, you know, total number of students as that grows, we're seeing a divergence between families saying, yeah, the charter schools are meeting what we'd like to see and the districts who are not. Uh, and so we have seen districts that have, have shed a lot of students, um, you know, even as we have even in the, the Phoenix metropolitan area, you have districts that are growing leaps and bounds. They're building new school facilities. They're they're you know highly rated, um, and families are still opting into that. Uh, and then you have others parts of the town where the the families you know are leaving in droves from the school districts for for uh, various reasons, whether it's financial mismanagement, uh, you know, kind of um, mediocre, stalled academic performance, all these things contributing. But yeah, you are seeing that families, even as there absolutely is continued growth. Um, are opting for options that they think actually meet their kids' needs. Well, how about the demographics of the choice sector? Uh, of course, Arizona has a very large Hispanic community, growing Hispanic community. Is that the is that the sec the segment of the population that's choosing the the choice sector, or is it the white population that wants to uh, separate itself from the uh, district schools? Yeah, it's it is everybody, and that you know that's a common critique from again kind of teachers unions to say, well, you're you're just leaving all the disadvantaged students, or you're leaving behind minority students, um, and actually charter schools like districts uh, tend to serve majority minority populations, and so um, you actually do have again common claim to say you're you're just you know taking kind of wealthy suburban white students, um, but actually we've seen charter schools that are in all parts of the state, all parts of the city. Uh, and so you, you are you are seeing that. And again, I, I know that I think uh, you guys have uh, put out content, but I know that there's been a number of national studies showing look, 
things like charter schools, actually we tend to see significant gains among minority populations. And so that's something where uh, I, I do think you continue, continue to see that need. And we've seen a lot of you know, uh, English speaking Hispanic families uh, over the, you know, I, I think the research has been increasingly clear, for instance, that during the pandemic, it's these most disadvantaged families who have taken the brunt of the impacts from school closures. And so th this is absolutely something where we're, we're trying to say, hey, why is it that you're fighting against extending eligibility to the ESA program, for instance, uh, to, you know, families who uh, qualify for free and reduced price lunch. Uh, you know, we had um, done a lot of research on our side, you know, sort of showing, look, these these are the kids, not only does the polls, polling suggest education next, you know, the, the polling has shown that you actually see a lot higher support for school choice among essentially Hispanic or African-American constituencies as you do from teachers union uh, uh, members. And so you've got a disconnect between these groups that are trying to say, no, we expect you to stay in our institution and the families and the students who are, who are you know, I think, clamoring for, for options and opportunity. Well, how has the COVID uh, pandemic affected the use of choice? I, you've alluded to this in a couple of your observations, uh, but how would you sum it up? Is there been a significant migration away from the district schools during the uh, pandemic that is since uh, since the uh, March 2020 uh, shutdowns of schools across the country, we're now oh, two wow. years later. Uh, do we see a significant migration or do we not? Yeah, I would say that we do. Um, and, and it's in a couple of data points. You know, we, we saw the district enrollment go down by some 50,000 students, uh, you know, kind of following the, the outset of the pandemic. Uh, again, charter schools, we're still seeing kind of uh, increases to them, but we're also seeing and you know, uh, data that's come out around homeschooling, right? So what you've seen is a lot of these families uh, essentially said, look, the, again, the public schools are making me kind of quasi de facto homeschool anyway. If I'm taking time off, uh, why am I still beholden to, you know, trying to, to coordinate with that if it's just going to be sitting them in front of a, a Zoom screen all day? Uh, and so you actually had in Arizona and in other states, you know, essentially a doubling or more of the percentage of kids doing homeschooling. Uh, and so that's obviously the data on that's a little fuzzier uh, insofar as a lot of that, it's not kind of a central repository, um, but you have seen, you know, evidence of that going from sort of three or 5% to, you know, 10% in, in that kind of range in, in places uh, around the country, including in Arizona. So that's something that again is suggesting there's been a huge growth also, I, we haven't touched on this uh, specifically, but uh, micro schools and, and learning pods or pandemic pods, which kind of straddles that universe between homeschooling and private education. Uh, and we've seen providers in Arizona, things like Prenda, um, these groups that have popped up to say, hey, we're going to help provide opportunities for families who want to come together and, and create these you know, small in-person learning communities uh, to do that. So that now, will they be eligible for the education savings accounts so, so that the families who participate in those pods could actually use their education savings accounts to help pay for these um, services or uh, their educational materials, et cetera? Yeah. So the um, the ESA, because again, it's it's very flexible in terms of it says, look, we're going to put this money in an account for the parent. They can use that for private school tuition. They can use that for tutoring. They can use that for various forms of instruction or curriculum materials. So they're actually able to put that funding. Again, it's a little bit more flexible uh, than just saying you you still must go to a established brick and mortar, you know, public or private school. 
Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating story. I guess it will probably be a long story because I'm, I'm sure that we're going to have some litigation over the differences of opinion between the governor and the uh, Treasury Department. Isn't that what you expect as we go forward? Uh, I do. And again, we've seen already, um, you know, this this escalating with now uh, Arizona, you know, kind of chief elected officers, both the governor and the state attorney general, uh, you know, uh, firing off letters back and forth from the Biden administration. And so it, it does seem like this is, um, I think, the next 60 days and afterwards, you know, it's it's hopeful that we'll see the the folks in Washington, you know, not try to to you know, again, micromanage um, the use of funds that, as we talked about, you know, statutorily seem like they they have given a lot of latitude to states. Uh, and also, you know, as you pointed out, the fact that so much funding has come into this state, and these are, you know, in particular, this this program around the, the educational recovery uh, program for this these $7,000 scholarships for kids is a, a uh, I would say a modest portion of that funding. Um, so there are some other pieces that, that they've also objected to from the Biden administration, um, but you know certainly with with this piece in particular, um, you know again this is clearly intended to help those families and, and provide support. So hopefully you know we'll we'll make sure that those kids do get do get the help they need. Well, Matt, uh, thank you for bringing our audience up to date on this uh, contemporary issue, and uh, thank you for participating in the education exchange. Well, thanks again for having me on. Appreciate it very much. I've been speaking with my, Matt Bienberg, who is the Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, about the latest controversy between the Biden administration and the Ducey administration in Arizona over education savings accounts. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Our Education Exchange podcast is released every Monday at noon Eastern Time.